Good evening, everyone. Welcome, comrades and friends, to Workers' World Party's weekly broadcast where hundreds of revolutionaries from around the world gather to strategize, to analyze, and to build the struggle for a socialist future for a workers' world. Tonight, we are so excited to be joined by comrade Professor Vijay Prashad, the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and chief editor of Leftward Books. He is the author of 30 books, I believe, more, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and No Free Left, The Futures of Indian Communism, and contributed to the recent anthology collection, Capitalism on a Ventilator, The Impact of COVID-19 in China and the U.S., my name is Ted Kelly from the Philadelphia branch of Workers' World Party and co-editor, along with Miranda Chrisman, of Tear Down the Walls. And without further ado, I would love now to introduce Vijay Prashad. Welcome, comrade. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Yes. Great. Great to be with you. Yeah. Thank you. So let's, let's get right into it. The subject tonight is about vaccine imperialism, vaccine apartheid. We know that the United States has hundreds of military bases around the world. The U.S. assassinates and overthrows governments with impunity, mm-hmm. imposes sanctions on a, a third of the entire population of the planet. Your, your most recent book, Washington Bullets, is a history of these kind of atrocities. But the empire also has other mechanisms to, to retain its stranglehold over the global south. And I was wondering if you could talk about the methods by which it's imposed this vaccine apartheid through intellectual property and patent law, but also just to tell us about the situation in India right now. It's great to be here. First thing that we should know is that this pandemic started in January 2020. That's when the WHO declares it as an emergency, a public health emergency, late January. On the 11th of March, the Director General of the WHO, Dr. Tedros, says that it's a pandemic. This is a significant event. There was plenty of time. The United States was informed in late December 2019 by China CDC that there is something happening in Wuhan. It's quite disturbing. You need to know about it. And in fact, Dr. George Gao, the head of China CDC, was crying on the phone when he spoke to the head of US CDC. This is reported in the New York Times, actually. So there was advance warning And the advanced capitalist countries just did not follow basic protocol. And I want to start here, Ted, because this is important. The WHO said that based on their assessment, it was the 20th of January when they figured out that this this particular virus could go from human to human. Human to human transmission actually is what triggers the public health emergency on the 28th of January. And then eventually, March 11th, the pandemic They only figured out human-to-human transmission on the 20th of January. When they figured out human-to-human transmission, they basically said, listen, you need to wash your hands. You need to maintain some physical distance. You need to wear a mask. Vietnam, which shares a very long border with China and is actually within bus ride distance of Hubei province, which is the province uh, home to Wuhan city, Vietnam immediately decided that they need to do a public relations campaign. They created very cute little song about washing hands. And, you know, in fact, the song was so cute, people were mimicking it on TikTok. And they were able, in a sense, to break the chain of the infection very quickly. Look, Vietnam has had nothing like the infection or casualty rate 
of the United States or Brazil or India. So very simple method, they were able to slow down the spread of the, the virus, of the disease. And then, you know, their healthcare capacity was not overrun and so on. It's important to start there, Ted, because it also buys you time as you begin to understand this virus, as you begin to develop a vaccine and so on. If you do basic things, you can buy time to confront a public health challenge. That's what the WHO said. India did nothing. Mr. Narendra Modi basically told the public, go out in public and bang pots and yell, Corona go, Corona jao, Corona jao, Corona jao. It's ridiculous. You know, it's fantastic. They didn't follow basic protocols. The United States, Trump kept saying, there's no Corona. It's a Chinese virus, racist stuff. You know, no, no basic adherence to science and rationality. Same in the United Kingdom, same in Italy and Brazil. The Mr. Bolsonaro is, is, a, is barely a leader. He's like a thug. And so you had chaos in these advanced capitalist countries. So interesting that in the socialist countries, in Cuba, in Venezuela, in Vietnam, in Laos, the governments acted with an immense amount of responsibility. This was also true in capitalist countries with a reasonably strong state where the state hadn't been destroyed by neoliberalism, such as New Zealand, such as South Korea. You know, let's face it, these countries hadn't destroyed the state system in the same way as say India has. India spends 1.3% of its GDP on healthcare. That's a shambles. You know, it's way below any acceptable number, way below any acceptable number. 1.3% of the GDP on healthcare. If you don't have the health and education of your public, why have a government? You know, why have a, India is the largest importer of weapons. So this was the immediate problem that these countries didn't take the basic protocol seriously. Number two, number two, over the years, because of this 1.3% of GDP expenditure in India and the low expenditure in the US, public health systems have been destroyed. Healthcare has been treated as a commodity. You privatized healthcare. India has one of the, has in fact the largest out-of-pocket healthcare systems in the world. That is, people just don't have any insurance, no public insurance, social insurance, nothing. They have to pay every time they see a doctor. It's the largest out-of-pocket in the world. Imagine that. It's outrageous, you know, poor country with out-of-pocket healthcare system. So they destroy public health. And by the way, none of this is something you realize afterwards. In 1978, 1978, at the Alma Atta meeting of the WHO, there's the Alma Atta Declaration. Alma Atta was a town in the USSR. In Alma Atta, there was a declaration passed by the WHO for public health protocols. If you go back online, you go online, read Alma Atta Declaration, and you'll see that, look, they had all the ideas already there. You don't need a pandemic of this scale to teach you the lessons of Alma Ata. You should have learned them before, but no, you destroyed your public health systems. That's the second point. And the third point is you don't have the capacity, public sector production capacity, to immediately ramp up the production of ventilators, to ramp up the production of oxygen-making kits, none of that. You rely on the private sector and you don't direct the private sector. You see... If you think about it, Ted, sometime around October of last year, when it became clear that there were vaccine lines, when it became clear, each of these countries, if they had a socialist system, would have directed, you see, directed the public sector to immediately start producing raw materials for the vaccines and so on. But you can't. Finally, 
Finally, on vaccines, which is very important, India has only vaccinated 2% of the public. At the current rate, my colleagues say, at the current rate of vaccination, India will not vaccinate before November 2022. I know you're in a pandemic. You're living through a fog. We've just finished 2020. I don't know if you remember that this is 2021. I understand the calendar got screwed up during the pandemic. This is May 2021 flash. India will not vaccinate before November 2022. We're not even near November 2021. We're talking a whole year and several months. Why? Why is this the case? India produces 60% of the world's vaccines. 60% of the world's vaccine produced in India. Why? Couple of reasons. One, Indian pharma is not going to produce vaccines unless the patent license is removed. And the reason is because Indian pharmaceutical companies rely on sales to the very lucrative U.S. market. They don't want to get sanctioned if they break intellectual property. So they're not willing to do it, even though they can. Why don't they go ahead and produce the public sector produced Chinese vaccine or the public sector produced Russian vaccine? They're afraid of being sanctioned by U.S. and European pharma companies. Second reason they can't do it is the United States in 1950 during the U.S. Brutal war against the people of Korea. During that war, the U.S. passed an act called the Defense Production Act. Donald Trump triggered the Defense Production Act, which prevents the export of certain raw materials for vaccines out of the U.S., including certain kinds of plastic bags. Because of that, Biden is not waived that, by the way. Biden is enforcing the Defense Production Act. So these farmers companies cannot ramp up production. You know, so we, what is the catastrophe in India? It's a terrible government, it's decades of austerity and privatization, and it's the imperialist block on vaccine production that should be happening at a public health level, not at a pandemic profiteering level. And it's fascinating to hear you say, too, about the sort of immediate life-saving measures that were taken in countries like Vietnam, where even before we know how to create a vaccine, we know that we can use, the state can use its mass media to put out public service announcements, like you're saying, and can impose the sort of normal restrictions once we realize that it's a human-to-human contact. None of these things were done, like you said, in these developed capitalist countries. And that's why one of the, the things that you and others who contributed to capitalism on a ventilator have really showed this stark difference in responding to crises like this. And I think going forward, we're seeing the structural inability of capitalism to deal with with crises on this scale. You've also written about the trap of charity from the global north. And it, it reminded me of something that Thomas Sankara said in a speech saying that this type of assistance is counterproductive. And the one who feeds you usually imposes his will on you. And how, you know, Burkina Faso did not need food coming in bags, it needed irrigation equipment and science. And and I wonder what role has institutions like the Gates Foundation and other groups like this played in all of this during the COVID crisis? I'm glad you raised Sankara because one of the things Sankara did, apart from the fact that he created a dignified state structure in the country of Burkina Faso, which he named, it's called a land of dignified people, upright people. It's a great name for a country a country which is not going to bow its shoulders down and beg you for anything. They did mass vaccination programs under Sankara. They vaccinated the whole population. 
they decided that this is not a joke you know look i mean there are a lot of people who don't believe in vaccines you're entitled to your opinion but you really need to have a studied opinion you know like polio that's a serious vaccine you know it's it's a it's i think a danger to your children not to vaccinate them against things like polio and so on and people will say oh i don't believe in vaccine they are going to implant microchips i spoke to a doctor about this in india i said you know he said look that stuff is just not true but the most interesting answer he gave me when i said which is the best vaccine he said the best vaccine is the one you're offered the best vaccine is the one you're offered take it i want to say a couple of things ted first i want to say india is in the middle of an emergency up to 400000 cases confirmed cases of covid per day and that's an undercount the death rate we don't even know cemeteries are clogged yesterday at the cemeteries in delhi there were lines of bodies waiting like taxis at an airport there are lines of people waiting outside hospitals basically hoping that somebody will die inside there imagine the civilization we live in imagine the civilization where somebody is standing outside a hospital hoping somebody is going to die this is like you know in an advanced country you're standing outside a restaurant looking at somebody saying finish your meal and leave that's one thing this is quite another you want somebody to die so you can go in and get treated and then that person dies there's a queue to get cremated at this point right now if bill gates says to me i'm going to rent 20 jumbo jets and send astrazeneca vaccines or send ventilators i'll say go ahead i have no problem with you right now right now you want to any charity foundation wants to hire planes and send oxygen making machines send them india is in the middle of a crisis this is no time for us to play long term politics and so on right now anything goes the us government wants to send its infernal warships and produce oxygen go ahead and do it now it doesn't matter this is an emergency you know people i know people are, are dying and it's 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 not that kind of situation you understand right now everything must be done in the middle of an emergency we must say you release all laws and do everything and that's why the re- release of the waiver at the wto is so important that's why removing the defense production act people ask me you know i'm in the united states what can i do for india i say you start a campaign immediately a mass campaign the defense production act restrictions must be removed immediately that's it you you don't need your dollars don't need your dollars you need political help political solidarity is much more important than the few dollars you can send you know th- that point i'll make i think it's it's important because people forget they think their money their charity is enough it's not your political solidarity is more important people of cuba need yes syringes there is a campaign now to raise money for 20 million syringes for cuba you can find the campaign online two cuba campaigns i want to promote one is the cuban doctors must get the nobel prize it's called cuba nobel secondly syringes for cuba just google syringes for cuba you need to go out there and raise yes at the same time come on we need to argue that this illegal criminal blockade is lifted off the island of cuba it is lifted so that the cuban people can finally breathe after after what after one of the longest wars the united states has prosecuted you know this chatter now the united states withdrawing from afghanistan noam chomsky and i have just released a very interesting article i hope you will find it interesting where we call it the united states withdraws from afghanistan question mark not really not really that's our argument because they are not withdrawing people say it's the longest wars not true the longest wars that the united states continued to prosecute are against korea 
that was never ended and the war against cuba never ended so yes we need relief we need to fight politically yes and then we wonder why do we have a civilization where we allow for no tax regime billionaires hoard trillions you know jeff bezos wants to be the world's first trillionaire hundreds of billions of dollars they sit on the 2000 billionaires in the world made over i think 54% their wealth increased during the pandemic they make trillions of dollars cumulatively and then they give a tiny fraction as philanthropy we are meant to pray to them thanking them for their fraction of the money you know that they give and they want buildings named after them foundations named after them i don't want their charity i want their taxes they need to be taxed at a fair rate they don't need so much surplus value in their pocket that kind of surplus value is obscene they need to be taxed so that the money can be used democratically see the problem with philanthropy is undemocratic giving because they get to choose where the money goes why should bill gates get to choose where the social wealth is going that's not his money that's social wealth now there's two ways to distribute the social wealth one is the billionaire decides what to do with it and the second is the public decides what to do with it now in the united states the people don't control the government so i i quite understand it's not exactly democratic but it's a lot more democratic than having charity dictate you know where the money goes so i'm in general not in favor of charity even in a society where the government is not fully democratic like in the united states it's not a democracy as such it's a sort of representative guided system of the elites fine in that system it's still more democratic than allowing one person or two people to dictate the terms you know even better to have a socialist system where there is a different more robust decision making process you know like in kerala it's all people's planning everybody gets a say in discussing and debating and so on so that's the part of it you know if the people were able to decide actually ter in any society people would say i would prefer to have good public health systems and good public education for my children these are far more important to me far more important than buying some major weapon system or subsidizing a big company or whatever it is you know you you go nuts in a country if you keep subsidizing big business and you don't provide basic services to people you know basic services i mean what is socialism what is socialism is the provision basically of basic services and the provision of leisure so that the people can make history that's all that socialism is socialism is the provision of basic services through the state a operation of some kind of the high command of the economy and then leisure that's what we want we want leisure so we can make history right now people are working 16 hour days 12 hour days there's no leisure in capitalism this is interesting i had a conversation earlier today i'm sorry i'm going on in a odd tangential way I had a conversation earlier about socialism the soviet socialism and i was thinking very much about the idea of scarcity and abundance you know how people said in the soviet union there was a scarcity of goods people were in queues and so on i remember seeing those pictures of texas where people were in queues in their cars to get food relief there are queues in the united states they're just not queues for the elite there are queues for the working class and and the systematically unemployed Anyway, let's leave that aside for a minute Ted. I was saying that yes, in the United States there's an abundance of goods, but there's a scarcity of access. 
anybody can see that supermarkets are full but people can't access them you can't access the ferraris and the diamond shops and all that the goods are all available you can't access them in the ussr yes in many times there was a scarcity of goods but there was no scarcity of access everybody got housing everybody got reasonable amount of food through basic provisioning that was all there you yes had queues for certain things but that's because there was a scarcity of goods but not there was abundance of access in a capitalist country of abundance of goods and scarcity of access you tell me which you would prefer and we can see in throughout history when when these actual socialist revolutions have taken place how the management of resources has changed in cuba the literacy rate skyrocketing the per capita number of teachers and doctors and i'm i'm glad that you mentioned just one of the recent examples of these crises cropping up in with the texas freeze a little later we're going to be hearing from marinda christman who's based in houston and they were one of many people who experienced the first hand degeneration of the infrastructure in this crumbling empire you mentioned the waiver of patent protections for vaccines but i'm so glad that you also mentioned the alleged withdrawal plan to withdraw troops from afghanistan and just 2 days ago biden advisor dr anthony fauci said that forcing drug companies to abandon intellectual property rights to covid-19 vaccines would backfire it would lead to long disputes he opposed any plan to quote rip up international trade rules but then just yesterday the biden administration made some announcement that they were considering waiving these patent rules tellingly that caused a, a drop in the stock prices for big pharmaceutical corporations like merck and pfizer pfizer who is seen like so many you know billionaire corporations massive windfalls during this pandemic but the biden administration double talk is now well known the support for the genocide in yemen they said they were going to stop that that was not actually true the plan to withdraw us soldiers from afghanistan seems extremely unlikely even the $2000 checks that us workers were were promised during the campaign ended up not being the case so what are the chances that the biden administration actually goes forward with this this waiver for vaccine development right so the, i want to talk about two things that one is patents and the other is production because these are in a way related and when i get to production i want to talk about russia and china uh, and to some extent cuba because i think that's important first i think it's important for people to know that until 1986 to 1994 the uruguay round of the general agreement of trade and tariffs until then It's interesting what was patented. Let me try to give you an example. Well, I don't have a good example here, but imagine I'm holding a packet of medicines in my hand. And what was patented until the Uruguay round of the General Agreement of Trade and Tariffs in the 1980s was the process of producing the medicine. So if this is a medicine for I don't know headaches, the process of the medicine was patented, not the medicine itself. which meant that a country like india could take the medicine reverse engineer it find a different way to make the medicine and that was acceptable it's known as process patenting then in the uruguay round entering the wto in 1994 you had product patenting the product itself was patented this actually stifles innovation because when you reverse engineer a drug you can find a better way to make it actually it increases 
scientific inquiry and so on so actual trips and trims is the names of these procedures trade related intellectual property rights they actually stifle innovation in this way so that's the first thing to remember secondly inside the world of the wto there's been an enormous debate around two fronts one is on aids drugs in 2003 india brazil south africa got together at cancun and created a block called ibsa india brazil south africa this was the first grouping that later becomes brics in 2009 but brics starts with india brazil south africa 2003 brazil puts in motion a law that allows it to basically invalidate international patents south africa followed and india joined them saying we will produce aids drugs and give it to you at a low price and this was very significant bill clinton by the way opposed it publicly as he has opposed this particular patent waiver i'm getting to bill clinton in a second ted because people may not remember his culpabilities his criminal act around around this so the first thing to recall then is the aids drug issue the aids cocktail was a slight attack to poke at patent law it didn't succeed they were able to get away with it because the aids crisis had raised in the north in united states canada in europe and so on a constituency developed that defended the rights of third world countries to break the patent laws a constituency developed some of this was helped along by act up and others who really fought hard to enable th- this to happen okay so that's important but it didn't actually disrupt the rigid patent wall that had been created by big pharma so that's one second thing is in in various phases but as recently as 2015 the wto committee that looks at these issues agreed that less developed countries have a right to break patent laws and they extended this till 2033 so from 2015 to 2033 the less developed country isn't a pejorative term it's a term of art meaning it's an acceptable designation in the wto framework and certain countries are on a list called ldcs and they are now allowed to go off patent and create medicines okay so that's the first thing about patents related to this yesterday catherine tai the us trade representative she basically said that the united states is willing to go into negotiations in the wto committee around patent withdrawal for the vaccines they didn't actually say it should be waived you got to remember that that committee operates on consensus so the united states knows somebody is going to oppose it there somebody is going to carry the the suitcase for big pharma and it will be imposed so i don't i think the headlines are wrong today the headlines generally said biden administration finally says patent waiver can go through i don't think that's true if you look closely at catherine tai's statement it says we are willing to go into negotiation so i don't know where the new york times and others they are basically in that liberal haze where they don't want to see the realities you know that exist okay so that that's the patent side of it right let's come to production for a minute these less developed countries are allowed until 2033 to make drugs but only one ldc only one ldc has the capacity to make drugs and that's bangladesh so what's the point of having a waiver when nobody has a production capacity so this is part of the whole destruction of the public sector pharmaceutical industry in the world i said i'd come back to bill clinton you may remember that when bill clinton was in the middle the thick of the crisis around monica lewinsky and so on he bombed afghanistan and he bombed sudan people may remember this an illegal act 
no un resolution he bombed sudan what resolution did he bomb sudan on he bombed a factory in khartoum accusing it of being a terror factory that was the al shifa pharmaceutical factory it's the only pharmaceutical factory in sudan was destroyed by bill clinton never rebuilt sudan today does not have the capacity to make medicines thanks to bill clinton when are people like this going to be called account for their criminal activity i mean that's a criminal act it's an act where he was trying to defray attention from a legal case in washington dc where he is accused of essentially sexual harassment in the workplace and he destroys the pharmaceutical factory in sudan where now the sudanese people have access to no medication you know people are hot and bothered about what's happening in xinjiang i would like you to pay attention to your own government for a minute destroying the only pharmaceutical factory in a majority muslim country you are so worried about muslims what about the al shifa factory when did the united states return and build a factory there never 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 actually never destroyed factories in afghanistan when were those rebuilt never actually destroyed the leather and date industry in iraq when were those rebuilt never just to put it plainly destroyed the iraqi date trees because of something like napalm and and so on what who is going to recover all this okay leave that production facilities you see that's the key thing that should be on the agenda now it's not enough to call for the patent waiver that's an immediate short term thing we are demanding it we are demanding defense production act be removed but we also need public sector pharmaceutical production to be built in third world countries and it shouldn't be built in every country you know we need to have the un conference on trade and development the united nations development program the imf all of them need to come to a conference because they have money okay i think the imf is a bunch of crooks but they have money they are holding our standard drawing rights our money is held in an imf account okay i think there are a bunch of crooks i've written a lot of books talking about them but they still hold my money you know they still hold money of the third world that money needs to be put on the table a plan needs to be created in the african union for instance there needs to be a consideration of having regions horn of africa build up pharmaceutical capacity it's not just about this covid-19 vaccine ted you see we have been told by scientists there will be catastrophic health events coming in the future i mean i'm all in favor for the creation just like we have an intergovernmental committee on climate change i'm all in favor of an intergovernmental committee on health threats why not have one on health threats if we have one on health threats it could direct the african union assist the african union for instance to build pharmaceutical production capacity in a regional basis southern africa build capacity western africa build capacity northern africa build capacity it also will build relations between neighbors you see very important thing we don't have that on the table so lifting the waiver is one thing now coming to china russia the european and american vaccine companies say we would prefer to flood the market in india with our vaccines which india will buy rather than lift the waiver and rather than allow public sector vaccines from russia sputnik and sinovac from china to enter see they don't want the growth of the public sector pharma they would like their pharma to sell around the world the point isn't to sell european and us and so on vaccines whether produced in india or not because as i said india pr- produces 60% of the world's vaccines 
whether india produces it or not we don't want these companies to be dominating in perpetuity we want to build public sector capacity that's the key thing i am not embarrassed to talk about rebuilding the public sector basically neoliberalism and privatization have totally failed they have driven a stake through the heart of humanity we need to return to the public sector on key things like health education elder care that kind of thing we need the public sector and i'm so glad that you mentioned so many of these things particularly the production aspect which is similar to what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about thomas sankara and burkina faso and the the sort of bourgeois legalisms and the mechanisms by which the biden administration and other governments can sort of get around not being forced to do some of the, you know like the pro act provisions to safeguard union organizing rights that could have been implemented through an executive order if Biden really wanted to do that. Same thing with acting on vaccine patents, as you know, we were talking about with Sarah Flounders earlier today. These could be done. But we also, I, we could spend a whole hour, if not longer, talking about the crimes of the William Jefferson Clinton administration. And I just think that you know, workers in the belly of the beast, it should be an embarrassment to us that these criminals are walking around with impunity and that we're, we have not organized enough power to actually hold these people responsible for uncountable deaths, just in the case of the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical plant. So I, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned all these things. I'm just going to make two quick announcements before we get to our next question, comrade. Workers' World newspaper has been in continuous circulation since 1959. During the first months of the COVID-19 pandemic, the print edition was temporarily suspended, but we're Happy that we're printing our uh, our newspaper again uh, on a monthly basis. You can subscribe to receive Workers' World newspaper by email at workers.org. And also, each week we run our section, Tear Down the Walls, which is about the struggle for the abolition of the prison industrial complex. The Prisoner Solidarity Committee has a long history of solidarity with imprisoned members of our class, from our inside report from the Attica uprising in 1971 to our weekly coverage today. We provide free subscriptions to anyone who's currently incarcerated. So you can support that program at um, patreon.com slash WWP. Comrade, you've also written about how China has dealt with the COVID-19 virus. And, you know, we talked about Vietnam and, and other socialist countries a couple of your articles in Capitalism on a Ventilator, The Impact of COVID-19 in China and the U.S., are about this subject. And I wonder if you can compare this to India's experience, specifically about the relationship between India and China right now. You know, you mentioned that India has been manufacturing millions of doses of the vaccine. That's a huge part of the world's vaccine production. Can you talk about what India's relationship with China is like right now? It's a depressing subject, actually. It's not easy to talk about because India and China are neighbors, historic neighbors. Both countries, roughly 1.4, 1.5 billion populations, enormous. If you add India and China, it's 3 billion people. There's about 7.9 billion people in the planet. Indians and Chinese number almost half of them. Okay, that's amazing. It's a huge populations. Both India and China win their independence, as it were, at the same time. India in 1947... China in 1949. Now, China in 1949 was in worse shape than India in 47 because you, you have to remember China's World War II started in 1937 at the Marco Polo Bridge incident. In fact, you can go back earlier when the Japanese first come and seize parts of Manchuria 
you might even go earlier but anyway let's just start in 1937 and it effectively ends even though world war 2 ends in 1945 china's world war 2 ends in 1949 when the communist party enters beijing and chiang kai shek and co run to taiwan so that is a 12 year war let me ask you i don't know how good your mathematics is ted but let's imagine the united states enters world war 2 in december of 1941 correct so let's not count 1941 it's 1942 1943 1944 and a part of 45 so the united states was at war second world war for about 3 and a half years china was in world war 2 for 12 years okay just breathe that in chinese physical plant infrastructure was destroyed in fact some of it was destroyed by chiang kai shek who blew up a dam and flooded an entire province and killed you know i don't know over a million people died because of that maneuver so that they could then retreat from the japanese troops it was like a clash and burn no what's that called uh, something retreat you know where you scorched burn earth, things and hmm? scorch earth scorch retreat, earth yeah. correct thanks a lot scorch earth except here you weren't burning you were flooding and huge number of death and so on country was destroyed in india yes there was destruction but the colonial powers for whatever reason had built up an industrial plant had allowed indian capitalism to emerge you know in steel iron and steel mining and so on so in a sense india was in a better position in 47 but what is the difference between the two today for instance china has this year abolished poverty everybody agrees with that there is not one bourgeois agency in the world that says that's a lie everybody said it's true they have abolished poverty absolute poverty gone india half the population lives in poverty what the chinese did what the mao era did was they first improved basic living conditions of people health nutrition and basic sense of dignity in life that's what socialism in a poor country gives you Let, let's be fair all socialist experiments have taken place in poor countries actual socialist experiments from the october revolution to burkina faso to cuba and so on not one of the advanced capitalist countries contradictory to what marx had written not one of the advanced capitalist countries had a revolution it was all poor countries you know vietnam so on peasant countries that had a revolution so the one of the axioms of making a revolution is that you have the people strengthening their shoulders and feeling like it's their own country you don't have to take permission to walk on their land ted that's a main thing that's what the mao era gives people and because it's a poor country you have to increase the productive forces so from the 78 reforms onward china has been zigzagging i've talked to so many people in the chinese communist movement who say look we don't want to socialize poverty okay it's easy for people in the united states to say oh you've come back to capitalism or whatever i mean you're talking from a position in that sense of privilege you know this is a poor country we have to create some wealth so we are zigzagging between increasing the productive forces and then socializing the wealth in xi jinping time it's zagged back to socializing the wealth you know driving a kind of equality agenda yes there are times when they've gone too far in the other direction it's like you know i suppose trying to manage a boat in the water you keep testing the wind going one way and the other it's an experiment i mean vietnam is struggling with that you know how do you build well you you don't want to go in the pol pot direction you don't want to socialize poverty and create a brutal society like that please we don't want that i'm i'm sorry there may be people who think that's a good idea i don't think it's a good idea at all and i think the chinese leadership does not believe it's a good idea so china has built up its state structure they didn't ossify destroy the state structure it's true 
that during the reform era they cut back on public health badly badly during sars they realized that they had made a huge mistake in destroying public health systems huge mistake because they had that was a terrible mistake listen i'm not a people say you're a apologist for the chinese government no when there is a problem you must criticize it but criticize on facts not on hallucination and by the way chinese criticize themselves for this then you pivot you start rebuilding healthcare so by the time you got the covid diagnosis of human to human transmission look at what they did in wuhan let's not forget that they emerged and built whole hospitals from the ground up in days they built whole hospitals from the ground up in days and they basically have been able to break the chain of infection ted my friends in china walk around without masks masks are gone for most places you know they test all the time when there was a small fear in one town in northern china that there were five six cases they tested 11 million people they tested everybody in an advanced industrial country there's no testing you have to pay money to get tested it's ridiculous it's ridiculous a public health emergency the government has to come in and test everybody contact trace isolate those don't do full lockdowns do it scientifically anyway you look at india it's a complete opposite it's a total shambles i mean i've already described the shambles for you but you see the tragedy is that because india because india from the 1990s has basically positioned itself as a subordinate ally of the united states when obama starts the pivot to asia hillary clinton goes to chennai in south india gives a speech about the new silk road initiative which was designed to go from india to central asia through afghanistan the idea was to block both russian relations with the central asian states and to prevent china from building its silk road that was the us plan that fell apart but india was at the core of that then they tried the quad the quadrilateral security initiative that quad with india australia japan and the united states is very much in evidence the first meeting of world leaders that biden had was with the quad leaders the virtual meeting that he held so india is very much in the us camp and has been jingoistic i mean the united states didn't ban tiktok but india has banned tiktok india has banned these things india has banned all chinese apps so in the middle of the crisis recently president xi jinping of china said we want to send aid now at the time india said fine but this should be in the normal course ted last year when the chinese were sending aid to other countries india could have used assistance you know india should have been immediately building up oxygen supplies every hospital in india should have a small machine that converts natural oxygen into medical oxygen by removing the nitrogen but we don't have that stuff you know two train loads of oxygen have come into delhi because delhi hospitals have run out of medical oxygen it's ridiculous medical oxygen is not like building nuclear bomb and if india can build nuclear bombs you see this is the top thing india is the world's largest importer of weapons why are you importing so many weapons you should be building medical oxygen plants you should be building schools for people you should be building schools so reason is introduced into people's lives not in the middle of the pandemic 7 million indians went to the town of hardwar to celebrate the kum mela 7 million indians the biggest super spreader event that you can imagine they should have prevented that they should have prevented it 7 million people gathered this is not a family of 20 and they call it a super spreader that synagogue in new york remember 
they said that's a super spreader this is 7 million people going to bathe in the river at the same time it's nuts it's nuts and the policy it would be confusing to try and understand well why is the indian state behaving in this way without a class analysis you understand that the indian capitalists are in bed with the global capitalists and have no interest in in protecting the lives of indian people i want to recommend that people check out your essay your contributions to capitalism on a ventilator because it it goes into to so many of of these particular issues particularly the the differences in how china and other socialist countries have have succeeded in dealing with the pandemic like you said it's available for print at bitly/capventbook and you can also get an ebook copy at bitly/capventebook it's a great collection that also has contributions from ajamu baraka from black alliance for peace mumia abu jamal sarah flounders and lee siu hin among many many others I want to bring on my dear comrade in Texas, Marinda Christman, and they have what I thought was a really interesting question about mass incarceration in the US and in India. Marinda, are you with us? Yeah, greetings from Houston. In Texas and throughout the US, the pandemic has especially hit those in the working class who are imprisoned or incarcerated in the inhumane warehouses for the poor and oppressed, known to us as prisons, jails, and detention centers. While the US incarcerates over 2 million people total or at a rate of 6,390 people per million, India incarcerates nowhere near that with nearly 500,000 people in prison total or at a rate of 350 per million. Both countries do have some sort of captive workforces behind the walls of these prisons, jails and detention centers. I was wondering if one you could speak to what this pandemic has been like for those incarcerated in India and also in the US the continuous policy of colonial criminalization of migration has seen migrant detention facilities for children reopened under the Biden administration on top of toxic waste sites in places like Homestead Florida and El Paso Texas so the second question is i remember reading about construction of migrant detention facilities in Assam under Modi back in late 2019 early 2020 so i guess the second question is also has there been any word of resistance to ongoing brutality behind the walls of prison jails and detention centers in india during covid so firstly miranda this is a very important question and it touches me personally because i have a lot of friends who are behind bars gautam navlakha my colleague at news click has been behind bars for a while anand teltumde who is an author of mine from leftward books is behind bars they are all political prisoners varvara rao is behind bars sudha bardwaj is these are i'm just naming you political prisoners these are people who have been organizing against modi and they just get picked up and thrown in all kinds of crazy they were charged with conspiracies to kill modi conspiracies to do that conspiracies to all nonsense by the way every one of them each one of them is in ill health and in very bad conditions in jail i mean look in many advanced industrial countries there was some empathy people went ahead and said let's vaccinate prisoners accelerate vaccination of prisoners and so on because they are wards of the state many advanced industry i don't know in the united states but many places that was the push in india it's the total opposite firstly i want to tell you something about indian prisons in india there are more under trials in prison than there are convicted people in prison 
so that means so that's why the numbers are all crazy because what you see generally in terms of incarcerated people in india is those who have been sentenced and in jail but there are more under trial sitting in prison do you know why because most people suffer from class crimes in other words you are too poor to pay bail too poor to even bribe a, a lawyer to make sure you get to court so there's no habeas corpus nonsense you're sitting in jail for 20 years waiting for your hearing you see what i mean so they are not considered incarcerated in the numbers so we believe the numbers are higher that's point 1 and the situation is bad miranda you know it right if you've got people sitting in cages essentially and a virus comes in where's the isolation it's insane it's not going to happen right it will run through a population so that kind of thing is happening and because in india the numbers of those who are dying we have no clue the least we'll be told is in prison i mean what records they keep i don't know i don't think it's to be trusted okay so that's that question secondly this modi government is basically an effectively offense socially offensive government it has deep antipathy to muslims and that guides a lot of its social policy in 2019 when the modi government came to power they pushed through a suite of orders and laws the citizenship amendment act the um, national population register and so on and these were essentially in many ways anti muslim laws that were put in place the citizenship amendment act is very interesting because what it suggests is among india's neighboring countries minorities can apply to india for asylum now this is interesting what does it mean it means that hindus buddhists jains christians and others can apply but not muslims because in the largest countries around india the muslims cannot claim to be minorities so question was raised what about ahmadiyas in pakistan they are persecuted minority in pakistan but they happen to be muslims who are persecuted or if i say as a shia in pakistan that i feel persecuted i want asylum in india why you would apply for asylum in india i don't know but you say i want asylum in india the government not under the caa so this was effectively an anti muslim provision there was mass demonstration around india you may have seen this in the area of shahin bagh in in delhi these women basically created an encampment mainly muslim women sat down and said forget it we don't agree and there was mass demonstration across the country i addressed a crowd in calcutta i couldn't see the end of the crowd it was that big huge enormous demonstration you know millions of people on the street across india against this policy the pandemic came in and there was a communal riot i would like to let you know that next month from leftward books we are publishing a book called delhi's agony edited by brinda karat of the communist party of india marxist and myself it will have a report done on that pogrom against muslims in february last year in delhi and essays by the actor nasiruddin shah the the musician singer tm krishnan ajaz ahmed and others will have essays in it it's going to be a very fine book it will come out next month from leftward books but in this whole period miranda the question of assam loomed large because in assam its borders bangladesh and there's a lot of scurrilous propaganda about bangladeshis coming into assam bengalis coming into assam and this poses a problem 
so the modi government in its deep social offensiveness created these caged prisons as you say whatever to remove people who were not on the books in the national population register and as a consequence of this policy it deeply divided assam society it deeply divided the society there was an election in assam recently the bjp or modi's party came back because the way they win elections is that they polarize the population on religious lines and then they hope that the a section of the hindus will galvanize around their standard and they'll win the election they want to divide the others and that's what they did in assam and they used this thing about foreigners and deportation and all that as an electoral tool you see ted earlier talked about the character of the ruling class the ruling class has contempt for society let's face it okay the ruling class has contempt for society they don't care right now there's 37 trillion dollars sitting in illicit tax havens 37 trillion dollars sitting in tax havens from lichtenstein to dubai to panama to wherever right 37 that's the minimal amount we have been able to find 37 trillion right now the total external debt of developing countries less developed countries and not less developed countries total external debt is 11 trillion dollars that's one third less than one third of the money that the filled with contemptful ruling class has hidden in tax havens illicit tax by the way this term illicit it's not my term it's used by the un world it's used in the basel convention you know the basel convention decides on banking regulation this is not my term the basel convention they call these tax havens illicit 37 trillion dollars minimum they have contempt for the human public people can't get food in advanced industrial countries their relief ends they don't know how to eat and these people have squirreled away 37 trillion dollars and we let them get away with it we agree with this idea that they deserve it we feel bad suddenly for bill and melinda gates oh my god they're going through a divorce that's so sad people wrote if bill and melinda gates can't make their marriage work what hope is there for me are you crazy are you crazy what kind of you've lost your mind that's why the the resistance to capitalism and to empire is really the way of of asserting one's dignity here in the US and we are coming to the end of the program and I thank you so much comrades for being with us but you know here in the US last year 30 million people came out onto the streets in response to the horrible murder of George Floyd and against police violence in general against the white supremacist state but uh, you know we did have one question that I if you have time Comrade, I would love for you to speak a little bit about it. And thank you, Marinda, for joining us. Perhaps the largest labor strike action in human history taking place with farmers in India. And I know that there's been a great deal of progressive or revolutionary organization in Kerala and uh, I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that uh, before we end. Oh, I would love to because Ted, you know, why end this story with the contemptful ruling class? I quite like what you're doing. I see what you're doing. Well done. Well played, Ted. Let's quickly mention both of these things. Firstly, for the last decade plus, more than the last decade, the 10 major trade union federations in India have come together to do an annual general strike. 
and every year ted the general strike has been larger than the previous year so on the 26th of november the 10 trade unions and allied farmers and agricultural workers unions came together and said on 26 november we are going to do a general strike for one day against the three farm bills three bills pushed through parliament undemocratically which are anti farmer which destroy the state support system and basically privatize farming and against the two labor ordinances so 10 trade unions and the farmers organizations a range of them 250 million workers went on strike this is the number that the government doesn't deny they won't admit it okay but nobody denies it 250 sub largest strike in world history took place on 26 november 2020 in the middle of the pandemic from that day around delhi tens of thousands of farmers set up encampments they have not left yet by the way they set up encampments on the 26th of november they are fighting for the withdrawal of these farm bills for the privatization of the system of food production in india essentially on the 26th of january they broke through the barricades you you got to understand that farmers don't take any shit from anybody agricultural workers and farmers they came with the implements i mean after all where do we get the hammer and sickle from where does the sickle come from doesn't come from your dad's dream okay it comes from the farming the toolkit of the farmer that hammer comes from the toolkit of the worker that's where the hammer and sickle is the worker peasant alliance that was on display on 26 november then on 26 january the farmers smashed the barricades and entered delhi because 26th of january is india's republic day it's when our constitution was brought into play in 1950 so they came and demonstrated in the middle of town they refusing to leave because they told modi that you have to withdraw these three bills so that is continuing so that's a national thing nationwide struggle against the modi government by farmers to demand the withdrawal of these three bills it's not going anywhere okay it's th- there's no reconciliation between the two sides what did marx write in capital marx wrote in capital when equal sides meet force decides it's a great line from capital when equal sides meet force decides you can go and check in capital i may not have quoted the first part correctly but the force decides is correct when two equal sides meet force decides marx is trying to explain that economic law in a class society doesn't happen the way they teach it in neoclassical economic books at the end of the day somebody gets slapped either the bourgeoisie slaps the worker or the workers come and they tear the bourgeoisie apart this is a serious class struggle okay and that's what's happening secondly kerala is a state southwest india 35 million people since 1980 the kerala government state government has oscillated between the communist front the left democratic front and the right wing front united democratic front both called democratic front since 1980 they've had 5 years 5 years 5 years 5 years the last 5 years it was the left democratic government led by pinarayi vijayan who's a leader of the communist party of india marxist pinarayi vijayan's government has tackled the a cyclone in 2017 two floods catastrophic floods in 2018 2019 the nipa virus and then the corona virus the health minister in kerala is a retired school teacher she is known as kk shalja teacher 
she was amazing the guardian of all terrible publications profiled her and called her corona slayer they profiled her last year she is an incredible person okay she gave an interview recently saying i learned everything about public health from how the cubans did it okay so this time the government in kerala had to face an election remember no incumbent has won since 1980 and the party won a thumping majority 100 out of 140 seats in the legislature pinarayi vijayan will return as the chief minister of that state kk shalja will return as the health minister people trust them because they are rational at the same time the government did all kinds of created financing i interviewed the finance minister tm thomas isaac you can watch it if you are interested at the leftward books site i interviewed uh, thomas isaac for people's dispatch as well asking you how did you finance all this because they improved public education they improved public health systems he just said we just did it you know we just did it we decided we're not going to do crony capitalism we're just going to build public health public schools people want that we just did it and you know they did a couple of other things i want to put three things out for you so you understand the depth of communist commitment number 1 they decided universal broadband everybody must have internet access already kerala is 100% electrified now universal broadband no bullshit about private public partnership nothing it's government broadband everybody secondly the government decided that girls were missing school at a regular level at the school level intermediate school level and they found when they did a study this was because girls have their periods and they were too embarrassed to come to school because they didn't have technologies you know pads and so on so the government decided in all government schools to have free technologies for girls to deal with their menstruation and the chief minister openly talked in his press conferences about menstruation you know he said this is a normal thing you know this is the human body we have to deal with it so we are going to have free dispensaries and you can do and the girl school rate went up it's very important people need to understand that these are sort of micro political things but they impact the life of half the population who will become women and so on and if they lose their schooling they lose a lot of things in their life that's a very important innovation of the government thirdly the government decided that transgender population must be given facilities so in kochi the city of kochi where we have a metro rail all ticket collectors were transgender the idea is that when you buy a ticket you have to physically have contact with the person and the idea was that everybody must have physical contact with somebody who's in the transgender community because the stigma has to be broken now you can have a criticism say oh my god this is this this is that it's you know whatever i don't care this was a very innovative way to try to break stigma this is the reason why a government gets reelected you know there's a section of the population that hates the government they are conservatives traditionalists they don't want anybody to talk about menstruation or transgender they find this thing what the hell that's part of human life what did the old man write the old man wrote nothing human is alien to me we just celebrated the old man's birthday on may 5th nothing human is alien to me neither menstruation nor transgender no of course public education and a public sector and what a brilliant way to use that quote in the in the current context too as a way of asserting the humanity of our trans brothers sisters and siblings 
and all everyone who menstruates as well. I mean, that's the 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 gains of the the state of Kerala and the organization there are, are truly provided another model for for how to move forward. Comrade, I, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. I was speaking to Dr. Robin Kelly just a couple of days ago, who wanted to come on and ask a question as a surprise, but unfortunately <laughs> he's teaching right now. But he wanted to, he asked me to ask you, how did you get Eva Morales to write the forward to your latest book, Washington Bullets? Well, that's a very good question, but it's a simple answer. The answer is that when the coup was happening in Bolivia, I'm very close to our comrades in the mass movement in Bolivia, and we got word that something is happening. And I called up Noam Chomsky and said, Noam, you need to have a statement about this because, you know, we've got to raise awareness. This So Noam and I published a statement. It was published the next day in newspapers in South America. The coup hadn't happened yet. Mm. Um, we were actually, the call I got actually said that they are coming tonight to kill Evo. This is a serious business. And I thought, my God, that's appalling. And so we released a statement and suddenly I was following this minute to minute when Williams Kaliman comes in to see Evo, I was, my heart was in my mouth. I thought, oh my God, they will arrest him or something. But Kaliman fortunately said to Evo, you got to just resign. And what was really, really disturbing to me, Ted, is in that in the advanced industrial north in Canada, the United States, Europe, and so on, people on the left started to say, well, he's overstayed his welcome. This is an indigenous leader of a country in the Americas. Okay, let's first deal with that. Okay, he's an indigenous leader in a country in the Americas, which has butchered the indigenous people for the past over 500 years. Secondly, he was in office less time than Angela Merkel was the chancellor of Germany. But that's okay. This indigenous man, get him out of there. So disrespectful and racist in the way. Secondly, people in the West, you know, even progressive type people, liberal type people, you know, said that, well, it was not a coup. You know, he resigned. It was not a coup. That really pissed me off. So I sat down in January and February of 2020 and I wrote this book. I, it's, I, I, don't, I don't think I've written a book this fast. I was up very late, a lot of nicotine, a lot of caffeine. And I wrote this book in a hurry because partly I've been writing this book all my life. I've been interviewing people about this all my life. When Evo Morales heard the book was being written, he was interested. And when he read the Spanish part, he said, oh, I'll write the forward. And he wrote an amazing forward because in the forward, he wrote that, you know, if you stand with the people, you will prevail. And then like a month after the book came out, the first polls came showing that mass would return to power. And eventually, a year after the coup in October of last year, Luis Arce and David Chokahenka won the election. And at the time, Evo Morales walked across the border from Argentina to Bolivia. And that was one of the best days of my life, you know. And then to see Evo in Caracas after that and to see his confidence and his sense that, you know, we will prevail because we will. Because the ruling class is shit, you know, it's a shit. You, you just can't believe them anymore. No. They're a shit, you know, we've got to do something else. We've got to be a little more confident. You know, I don't mean we need to be arrogant. I don't mean that at all. But we have to be confident. We can't believe these people. You know, we just can't. And it comes down to a certain level, the bare minimum self-respect to stop taking their bullshit. And what a great victory that the Bolivian people were able to provide to the global working class by defeating that fascist coup. So there, we did end it on a positive note. We have a, a great deal of work to do still. 
Comrade Vijay Prashad, thank you so much for joining us today. Be safe and, and keep your health and, and thank you. We'll, we'll talk again soon. Take care of yourself. And, and uh, by the way, I'm happy to be here because I remembered my old friend, Bill Bateman. There you go. I once sat in Rhode Island with a sign that said jobs for all. And it was a jobs campaign and people came thinking we were giving out jobs. And Bill had such a, has such a great sense of humor about it. I'm glad to be back with Workers World on this. Okay. Thanks, Ted. See yes, you thanks later. For, thanks for, we also learned a little bit about your uh, former career as a house painter. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Thanks, comrade. If you liked this conversation tonight, please consider joining a revolutionary socialist organization like Workers World. If you go to workers.org slash join, you can fill out the form that's online there and one of our organizers will be in touch. I just want to thank everyone for joining us tonight and say, build a worker's world.